0: Good morning, Prairie Creek. Good morning, Prairie. Oh, that was a good one. All right. <laughs> good to know you're out there this morning. Yay. And buenos dias. And dobra utra. Uh, oh, nice. We got a Russian speaker up front. Uh, how about Sabina's here? As, uh, this morning, as I was sharing in the Spanish service, I, I was just I was re- reminded of how challenging it is for us to... Uh, have shared culture as a church with different languages, and yet that's something we're striving to do. And thinking, too, the, the, as I share with you this morning about God's higher law, to think that uh, there's a written law that is bound by language, but then that God's higher law is not bound or limited by language. And so that's something we, I just want to get into with you this morning as is, is, is looking at that, as thinking about God communicates to each of us through his word and a heart language. Uh, We worked with Wycliffe Bible Translators for eight years, and two of that was overseas. And I was sharing sharing with Spanish speakers, sometimes when we're out in the foyer together and we're exchanging greetings and, and asking each other questions, I will just get this deer in the headlights, I feel stupid moment because what little Spanish I remember from my two very poor years of high school Spanish. By the way, anybody remember your high school Spanish? Was that not a waste of two years? <laughs> Sorry. But there's some Spanish in there somewhere. And then I had two years of Russian in college, and it is long forgotten too. Except every once in a while, it will rear its ugly head at inconvenient moments when I need another language. And of course, when we're out there greeting each other, and our Spanish-speaking brothers and sisters are speaking to me, it's Azerbaijani just you know, they say, so, "Oh, buenos dias, como estás," and I was like, "Ah, heshayaksheder." I was like, uh, my response is is in Azerbaijani, not in Spanish. was so like, and part of that's because the funny thing about language, uh, you know, linguists and neuroscientists will tell you, it all sits in the same part of the brain. That's a fascinating thing, the brain, how it works, is that you can put English in there, you can put Spanish in there, you can put Russian in there, you can put Azerbaijani. It all sits in the same place. And it's how the brain processes, you know, so it's, um, whatever's on top is what's gonna come out. And of course, our heart language, our first language, the language we learn in our home and in school, that's always gonna come out top. It's a stretch to speak in a second language. Randall translated for me earlier, and um, he's probably more exhausted than I am. Uh, it's just, translation is hard work. And we, yet, yeah, we, what we realize is this is our call as God's people to translate his word. And translating his word is not limited to language. It's an expression of his love. And that's what, if, if, if your inclination is like, okay, what's the big point? And now you can nap. There it is. Um, <laughs> enjoy your snooze. No, I'm, I'm teasing. But as we read the scripture this morning, and as, as we listen together, I do want you to ask, what is... The higher law that God gives us. Love's easy. Okay, there. You know, love is easy, or is it? What is the higher law that He gives us, and how is it fulfilled? And maybe that's the hard part. Knowing the answer and doing the answer are completely different things. Is that not right? It's like, has that been your experience? That's been my experience, too, and so that's one of the things, like, you know, for the 15 years I worked in human resources, part of what I did was learning and development, and you realize people will remember, what, 20% of what they hear and 40% of what they see and hear. So, oh, we have PowerPoint, and I was like, this is wonderful. Um, Except we've learned to tune that out, too. You know, it's like, uh, you know, our brains have adapted to our new Tech. Uh, In fact, brain scientists will tell you that uh, most people in teaching time, will tune out after seven minutes. So I'm already, what, three minutes in? I've got four minutes left to get it in, right? And then, then you're gonna tune out. I mean, that's, that is, that's what brain science tells us. We also know that if you, if, you, if you remember, 20% of what you hear, 40% of what you hear and see, but it's like 80% of what you hear, see, and do. And the doing is the hard part. And yet this is what Jesus invites us to. This was what he calls us to. And so this passage we're going to look at this morning in Matthew. I'm continuing with where I left off last time in sharing from Sermon on the Mount, which was a long time ago. Um, But starting with with chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Now, some things I want to point out here is like the salt and light. Oh, we've heard this. This is, oh, hey, here we're salt to the earth. Yes. We have a special use. We're light of the world. Of course we are. But why? What's the why behind it? How is God fulfilling his higher law through us? In the same way, let your light shine before others. Why? That may, they may see your good deeds... And glorify your Father in heaven. Now, our good deeds are fruitless if they do not point to God. And you know, a lot of us will do good deeds because we like doing them. Sometimes it's about self fulfillment. I was like, oh, I enjoy helping, I, I could do this. Sometimes we do small good deeds to avoid the harder good deeds. I got to watch out for that one. It's like, okay, I'll take the small jobs. <laughs> I signed up this afternoon, it was like, this evening, we have the big howdy party. And it's was like, I, I'll confess, I'm on, on, the, on the planning committee. I was like, I, I wait to see what I'm volunteered for because it's easier than taking one of the hard tasks. Um, and so it's, um, but, but nonetheless, it's like we work as a team and, and it's beautiful how it comes together. But sometimes it's easier to be told what to do than to step up and do the, do the harder thing. Are we in that place sometimes, glorifying ourselves? We do the good deeds that we glorify who? Our Father in heaven. And here's something that's really distinctive about Jesus' ministry, is throughout his ministry and throughout his teaching, he refers to God as his Father. His Father. It's a relational term. God is a title, And by the way, God is not his name. When we pray to God, G-O-D, that's not his name. That's his title. That's his function. That's his job classification, right? Um, That's where he is in, in the hierarchy. Father is something different. Father is relational. And Jesus is inviting us into relationship with the Father. And he's using us in that same way to invite others into relationship, to know him as Father. And when we work with Muslims, and it wasn't so much true in Azerbaijan, because in Azerbaijan we could say, um, we are all God's children. Oh, yeah, yeah, we're all God's children. That's, that's kind of a common human experience, except what's true in Islam is God has no children. Jesus is not God's son, and it is offensive to think that God would have children. Oh, it's forbidden. Why? Because God is set apart. He's unreachable. He's unknowable. He's good. He's merciful. He's compassionate. They say this with their mouth, but they can never experience it because it is not relational. And yet, this is the very thing Jesus teaches it is the heart of the gospel. God is Father, He loves us, it's relational. So let's keep reading. Do you not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets? I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Let's keep this in mind. Jesus comes to fulfill. How? For truly, I tell you, unless, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not hinder, enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, who are these Pharisees and these teachers of the law? That our righteousness exceeds theirs? Now, we have the benefit of hindsight. Jesus is speaking to contemporaries. These guys have to live with these scribes and Pharisees, they see them every day on the street. We can look back through the lens of time and through scholarship, and we know well, we've got a sense of who they are. Scribes, who are they? They're the ones who are transcribing the word. They didn't have the printed word available. They're literally the guys that are writing it out. They have it in scrolls. There are, it's not widely available. It's available in synagogues. It's available to a very select few. The word is read, but to have your own copy of scriptures—and my goodness—to think electronically, not only do we have it on our phone where we can read, and it's not just limited to paper. We can we can text it. You know, it's like it's so easily accessible, and yet. Is it in our heart? These scribes, though, they're the ones who know the word inside out. They're the experts. They're the lawyers, right? I mean, who better than an expert to be able to interpret the law? And you know, the, the interesting thing is, what is the reputation of lawyers in our culture? It's not high. You know, it's like I mean, think about what what are, what are what are words that we associate with lawyers? Like oh. Blood-sucking lawyers. It's like, oh, you know, they're, they're twisted people. And yet, if you're ever in a lawsuit, you want that law twisted in your benefit, right? You want the good lawyer who knows it inside out, who knows the way, the loophole that gives you advantage, that gives you a successful outcome in a lawsuit. Well, these guys knew how to twist it for their benefit. And in twisting for our own benefit... We've made the law about us and not what the intent is, that the, the law is for all of us. It governs our behavior, our expectations of one another. It governs our relationship between, between God and us. Um, it's, it's, not, it's not meant to constrain or to confine, but to set expectations, you know, to set boundaries so that we know what is reasonable to expect in a relationship. And when you get into the Ten Commandments, I mean, these are are really, they're really basic, you know. Who are the Pharisees? Who are the Pharisees? These guys are the ones who restored the prominence, the right place of the law in the community of Israel. See, they went through centuries of chasing after other gods and disobedience, even to the degree that God removes them from the promised land. And even when he brings them back there's still a needing to restore the practice of the law. Ezra has the law read in public. Everybody's standing and having the law read. And it And was interesting, too, that as the law's being read, not everybody understands the Hebrew that it's written in, and they have to have some of the Levites translate. Word needs interpretation. And yet, God gives a higher law that doesn't require interpretation because it's in the heart. So, You have a written law that these scribes and Pharisees really knew how to adhere to. Because a written law is basically following an obligation. And you come up to the line, up to the limit of the obligation, and then then you're free from everything else. And yet what Jesus is about to unfold in the Sermon on the Mount is a higher law that really flips their understanding of the Scriptures upside down. It challenges the core of their culture. Because here they are as the Jews, as a set-apart people, and they they failed in what their calling was to be a blessing to all the nations. Going back to Genesis 12 and God's promise to Abraham that he would bless all nations through him. Anyone that he blesses, that, that bless Abraham, he will bless. Anyone who curses Abraham, he will curse. And all nations of the world be blessed through them, through a people, through a community of people. And today, because we are grafted in through the blood of Christ that calling continues to us that we're to be a blessing. That higher law of love is not limited to a written word. It's a law of the heart is an act of love. So the Torah, you're compelled by obligation. That higher law, we're compelled by love. Now Jesus says... That that law will not fade away. It will not pass away. Not a single letter. Not a single stroke of the pen. Until it is fulfilled. How is it fulfilled? Until all things are accomplished. That God is, is, is glorified. And God was certainly glorified in Christ. In his very incarnation, Jesus modeled away. Gave an example that we can follow. Okay, so you got these ten commandments. It's like, okay. We can do most of it. Yeah, Jesus shows the law of the heart, gives us the example. He teaches his disciples to do things that are counterintuitive, that go to the heart, that are rooted in love. And sometimes it's interesting because what's rooted in love seems to even go contrary to written law. And I'm not talking about those Ten Commandments, but the extra laws that the Jews have that we're not bound by as Gentiles, right? Um, Those extra, you know, the dietary laws. The laws of Sabbath, the laws of work, uh, the, 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 the laws that govern their community, those laws were for them as a nation of people. And some of these things are even beneficial, but we're not bound by them because we're bound by a different set of laws. We're bound by this law of love, and Jesus models that. And he got a lot of flack for it too, didn't he? But think about this, until it is all fulfilled, until all things are accomplished and much was accomplished in the life of Jesus, in the teachings of Jesus, but in the death and resurrection of Jesus as well. But it's also to be fulfilled in us, as believers, as God's children, as his church, as the presence of God in this world, the light of the world, the salt of the earth, that's us. We are the presence of Christ in our world. Now God has expectations for his children, Every good father has expectations. Don't cause me any shame, son. Um, that was kind of seem like things, how things worked in my family is like, don't cause dad any shame. And yet, dad could do things that shamed us. You know, it's like, and so that's that continues to be a, a, a good principle in our family. That it, it's it is it is my honor and my 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 right as a father to embarrass my children. And it's like, how many of y'all do that as dads? Um, I'll spare you what my dad would do to embarrass us, but um, he was good at it. Um, I try to moderate that a little bit. But there are expectations in a family relationship. God has expectations of us that we work towards reconciliation, that we're reconciled to him, that we're reconciled to one another, and that we learn in, in, in that law of love to be reconcilers of the world to himself. That very same ministry that God gave to Jesus, uh, that ministry of reconciliation, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, he gives to us. What a great honor that we continue the ministry of Jesus. We see this earlier in, in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons and daughters of God. That when we do the work of peacemaking in our culture, in our world, that, that we can be recognized as God's children. There's also an expectation of, of working out our salvation. Uh, Paul talks about working out our salvation with, with fear and trembling. You know, it's like it's not, it's not a resolved thing because salvation is, is about God not just saving us from sin, but it's about forming his character in us. It's about work, work bringing us to completion, his character, his likeness, that we are like the father and we're part of the family business, that work of love and reconciliation. There's also an expectation of prosperity, that God will bless the things we do when we bless others. Prosperity not being about wealth, That's one of the great lies in the Christian church we call the prosperity gospel. Well, prosperity is not wrong. Our idea of it is very wrong because prosperity is not wealth. Jesus will go on later in in the Sermon on the Mount to tell his disciples where your treasure is, there's where your heart will be also. If our treasure is not in God and in the people we love, and he tells us to store up treasure in heaven, we need to treasure people even people that are hard to love. That we could see somebody who does not yet know Jesus and walk with them, and, and reveal through our life and through our words who Jesus is. We treasure that person. We have the potential of storing up treasure in heaven. And that's calling more people to God. He's doing the calling. We're just doing the walking alongside. But we've got to be about this work. The prosperity is not in wealth, it's in people. And remember that the Father was glorified by the suffering of Jesus. When Jesus talked about himself being glorified. We know I be lifted up, all men will be drawn. When he is glorified, he spoke of his death as glorification. And, and not that not that death in itself is, is a glorious thing. It is not. And yet what was the purpose of the death was, was, was redemptive. And that God has a redemptive work through his church that involves suffering. And that's a hard thing to hear. And that's not something that we embrace in the West. But let me tell you what. The global church understands suffering. And, and it's not just lack of resources. It's not just poverty But persecution. And maybe there's a time that we'll face persecution here. I think there's some soft persecution happening. Our kids face it in school. But the hard persecution, is like, not yet are we being put to death for our faith. But it's happening right now. It's happening. We went to church with Pakistani and Afghani uh, believers in, in Baku that were there, that if they went home, they knew they faced death. We were one family, uh, and thank God they're still in Baku. It's like I, I got to see them back um, being in, beginning in December. and It's like, see that family still there, and see their, their daughter grown up and an adult, that they, they knew as a family, if they got deported back to Pakistan, his family was going to kill him. And the daughter, the, the daughter, a minor child, would be a child bride. She'd be married off some Muslim guy that would assure that she was in, in, in a an adhering Muslim family. We're not facing that. God worked redemptively in the suffering of Jesus. He continues to work redemptively in the suffering of His church. Now, he says something that's interesting in verse 20, that's challenging. So, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, the experts, the models, and yet we know that the, Jesus had very hard words for these models, um, called them a brood of vipers, called them whitewashed tombs, called them hypocrites to their face. Would he have some of these words for us as a Christian community? I think I think we share a lot of frustration in knowing that um, much that we see in the American church is not right. And many of us are grieved by it. That we see the yeast of Pharisees at work, that instead of seeing a world that's broken and seeing God's word as giving us insight in how to, to rescue, how to come alongside, how to, to be part of the lives of broken people, we use God's Word, the written Word, to justify. To We've got to be set apart. Be holy as I'm holy, right? Be set apart. And we put up a barrier and we elevate ourselves above those who are different than us. And in a sense, we use classification to justify not obeying the higher law of God's Word, the law of love. So what does that look like? How do we How do we classify one another? You know, I worked for 15 years in HR, and one of the things I did in HR was um, what we call compensation and classification. So basically, you, you, you research somebody's job function, you compare that job function to how other employers are using people, and you compare what they're paying people, so you pay a fair market rate. So I've got a pipeline technician that we're paying $12 an hour for, and that's the value of his work. And his status is in his job classification. His compensation is tied to the value of his work. And it doesn't matter how hard he works. It doesn't matter how dangerous his work is. It doesn't, OK, it matters a little bit that there's some risk involved, because it's like, these guys would beg, come see what we do. Come see what we do. You're not paying us enough. So was like, hey, we will all can see nobody's getting paid enough. I'm not getting paid enough. Uh, you don't hear me complaining, at least not to you. <laughs> we, we complain within our own job classification. We get together in HR, we're underpaid, it's like, and they get together, we're underpaid. Uh, but they're, they're shouting out to us, hey, it's your job to know my job. Come look, and uh, okay, so this guy's trapping a cable on his back, and somebody's lowering him 90 foot down into a manhole. And it's like, and he's dangling over a, a 12-inch tube of raw sewage. And it's like, is that a 12-hour dollar an hour job? And you know, he's like, it's your job to recognize that. And I was like, I do. Then I'm paying this engineer $40 an hour. They're getting paid for what they know, not so much for what they do. Now, I mean they do things with what they know, but but the pipeline guy is the one who has to do what the engineer writes on the specs, right? And yet we classify. Do we use God's word to do the same? How do we classify people? Well, we can classify them by gender. It's like, well, here's men's roles. Here's women's roles. Men can do this. Men, women can't do this. Um, maybe God's Word says this. Maybe not, there's disagreement on that. Um, we use God's Word to classify by gender. We use God's Word to classify um, by, uh, by role, by function. It's like, you know, pastors sometimes can get really puffed up. And so can missionaries, by the way. We have to be careful about that. And sometimes we think the pastor should be puffed up and we put them on a pedestal that they don't want to be on. We, we create separation when really we are all God's children. We're called to this together. What about, what about class or caste? You know, it, it, it's, it's, it's interesting because we see in our international student community who comes... Are they the brightest and best? Yeah, they are. How much does their class in their home society affect their opportunity? I was like, when when you meet Indian students at uh, UTD, most you're gonna you're gonna be meeting upper upper caste Indians. They don't have the same advantages. Now, keep in mind, in their constitution, in their law, that classification of people is it's it's. It's outlawed, and and they do have ways in their culture of balancing. You know, it's like the, of giving opportunity for low caste people to have access to to education. And it's like the Indians made great strides in that, and yet what we see coming here are brightest and best, and there's just built-in inherent advantage. And yet, okay, so I can see that from somebody else's culture. Do I see it in my own culture? Do we treat people differently in the church? based on how they appear or what, they're, what they do in their work. I, I feel like we don't do that here, but it's, it's just one of those things we've we got to be constantly evaluating. James had, James had hard words about that. So we have to be careful about that. So it's interesting that we see, as we continue reading Matthew 5, verse 21... You've heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. Anyone who says, you fool, is in danger of the fire of hell. Now, what is it about these Pharisees and scribes that Jesus skips over five other commandments to zero in on this, you shall not murder. Or the, did these guys have a reputation for murder? They're the pillars of society. Is that their reputation? Is that what they're known for? Well, it's interesting that Jesus speaks of anger in speaking about scribes and Pharisees because it is very much anger that leads to the cross. Their anger at what Jesus says and what he does that does lead them to the path of murder. They do. This same word, judgment, that's used here about you will be judged, you face judgment, is the same word that's used when the Pharisee says he deserves death. For what? For demonstrating love over a written law? Now, obligation allows us to appear righteous. While justifying inhumanity. Do we dehumanize people when we see their differences and say, oh, that's not God's way. And so we exclude them to access. Instead of walking with them through their hardship. And pouring in to them the love of God. This is hard. It's much easier to be set apart and separate and look holy. Oh, be holy for I'm holy oh, I'm doing that. I can do that. But doing what Jesus did, giving up his rights, as as Paul writes in Philippians 2, setting aside his very rights to come into our humanity and the brokenness of it. It's hard. If following God's love is an act of obligation, then we are focused... I'm sorry, following God's law is an act of obligation, we're focused on the bare minimum. We're gonna do just what it takes. And so the do not murder, all right, most of us were okay on that. But this being angry in your heart, I'm sorry, y'all, every time I get in my car, help me and my kids can testify to that. Um, I probably say things in my car that I won't, none of you will hear me say or, you know, I remember this was, this was terrible. And this is just one of those things you bring with your family. If that's your family background, that's, again, back to first language, you know. It's, um, I remember working as a summer missionary in Memphis, and um, this guy's tailgating me bad, driving down Jackson Avenue. was like, here's this guy in this big Suburban right up behind me in my little bitty Saturn, and, oh, he's riding me close, and I'm getting mad, and uh, just about to give him... That magic signal to let him know what I think. And my eyes really focus in my rearview mirror. This was God's grace to see. It was the associate pastor of the church I was serving at and his wife and five kids in that suburban. <laughs> it was like, oh, Lord, help me. Anger. I wouldn't say my thoughts were murderous, but they certainly were not loving, that's for sure. And it continues to be a challenge. You know, it's funny too, picking up students at the airport, um, international students, one of the most common things you experience is like, oh, Americans driving on our freeways. It's like, it's so orderly. People follow the law here. People really care about the law. And I think... Oh, if you only knew what was in their heart and maybe what's under their seat, too. You know, it's like, um, if somebody gets two men, you know, um, you know I, I, don't, I don't see that happening in Azerbaijan. But I, I see what looks like a total disregard for law on the road there. And yet there's an order to things and how they drive. I certainly see less malice there. Not to say that you don't see malice at all. But here, oh, my goodness, watch out. No, seriously, y'all, watch out. We've got to be careful. But we got to be careful not to be feeding into that. How about this Raqqa? Now, we loved Raqqa in the youth group. I remember this, like, oh, Raqqa, that's funny. funny. We started using it as an insult, because that's, that's youth group human rights. Like, oh, we see each other in school, Raqqa! You know, it's like, oh, it's funny. Anyone who says you fool. we got to be careful what we say and what we think. When we dehumanize, then we also remove that which compels us to love. We desensitize. That greater law wasn't don't murder. It's like love leads you in a path of putting aside differences, putting aside grievances, putting aside, because what, I mean, every murderer is going to have a justifiable excuse, right? He provoked me. He deserved it. Something to justify an action, what justifies our actions that don't point to love? And this word judgment here, that Greek word, the same root that we draw our word crisis. Crisis is its its, it's a major t- turning point. It's a point of decision. Now, better for that point of decision to be with us of I'm going to choose the way that Jesus modeled than to be in the judge's hands. Because at that point, we we don't have the opportunity to change course. But but judgment just means to be bound, to be under obligation, to be subject to or liable, to be responsible. I would say to you, too, it's interesting because Jesus made himself subject to our consequence on the cross, didn't he? And his suffering. And does he, even on the cross, where he cries out, forgive them, Father, for they know not what to do. Have you really thought about that? Does Jesus' appeal to the Father, forgive them for they know not what to do? Were those just words? Or did God the Father Forgive? I don't know. But Jesus didn't say these words just to say these words. They were not empty words. We know everything he spoke was with intentionality and with love, with compassion. Are we at that point where we can forgive the most vile things? Jesus, subject to the cross. So... What do we do with this? How do we obey? How do we help each other? Because we see what's written in that, that higher, written in that written law is about obligation. And we can fulfill these, this obligation, and yet Jesus calls something more. There's one last story I share with you. Young man comes to Jesus, asks him how he can inherit eternal life. Jesus gives a surprising answer. He doesn't tell them, well, Bow your head and close your eyes. Say these words after me. Pray this prayer. Father, I'm a sinner. Now, he doesn't do that, does he? What does Jesus tell him to do? He tells him to follow the law. All these things I've done since I was young. Jesus tells him, it's like, one thing still you lack. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Then come. Follow me. And he went away sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus acknowledged him fulfilling the obligation of the written law and yet missing the higher law that was love. And he invited him to an act of love, which was sacrifice. Sell everything you have? Are we ready to do that? I'm not. But that, that, that appeal was for that man. What is Jesus asking of you? What does Jesus re- invite you to that allows you to follow him? It took three years with his disciples, and they still needed work, even after the resurrection. So don't give up hope. This is a lifelong thing. God doesn't give up. We shouldn't either. Let's help each other. Press on. Let's help each other fulfill that higher law. And a word from Paul as I finish. For you are called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, then joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, things that are not natural to us. We have to start with love. And the law is not against such things. There is no law against love. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the higher calling. Thank you for the reminder, Lord, that um, where there is failure in this, there is mercy because we are your children. So we come to you, Father, asking for your help, asking for your mercy. Help us, Lord, to see your higher law and to fulfill it. Help us to love one another, that the world may know that you sent Jesus. Help us to be one as you are one. And Lord, when a brother stumbles in this, help us to lovingly correct, not to be self-righteous, but to be sacrificially righteous, that we would bear one another's burdens. To see the potential in this church, Lord, to love in our community. Give us the patience to see this play out. Give us the grace. Give us the strength. In Jesus' name.